All right, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to continue through our series in 1 Samuel. Uh, if you're new to redemption, uh, this is just kind of what we do. We travel through books of the Bible typically. That's how we, uh, how we preach and teach here at Redemption Calvary. Um, and so we're in the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, we've covered all the way up to chapter 9. My name is Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption. It's my privilege and honor to serve you in the scriptures. Uh, it's a, a, a tremendous uh, honor for me to be able to open up the Bible with you and to be able to seek and serve the Lord in the scriptures. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 9 together today, uh, and uh, I'm excited to, to see what the Lord has for us. Uh, I had a teacher in Bible college, um, this reaching back about 20 years now, uh, but a teacher in Bible college, his name's Dave Shirley, and one of the things that he said, he had a few catchphrases, and so I'm not going to impersonate his, um, his voice because I can't. And uh, also, so hear this with a Southern drawl. Like he's from the South. And uh, so one of the things that he said was, good looking don't last, but good cooking do. <laughs> it's just one of the things he said. And we had the similar response. Like, man. And I always wondered, what does his wife think when he says that? Like, <laughs> I don't know what she, what her thing is with that or how that all worked with her, uh, but that was, was his thing. That's one of the things that he said, and it was, it was humorous, but he was actually using humor to communicate a really important truth. And, and here's the truth. Here's the principle that he's communicating. We tend to put way too much focus on the image of something and way too little focus on the substance of it right? Uh, you think about that, like he was sort of implying with these Bible college students worrying about, you know, getting married and uh, what that's all going to be like. And maybe you're, you know, you're single or you're in high school or, you know, young adult or something, and you're thinking about getting married. I'm going to give you Dave Shirley's advice. Good looking don't last, <laughs> right? There's going to come a day when she's hot, isn't going to keep you married, right? All the married people are like, amen, preach it. Because that's, not because their spouse is ugly. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm digging myself in a hole. So what I mean by that is that you just, you just get older. Like age happens and that's just the way that it goes. And as you get older, the things that you used to value when you were younger seem to not have the same kind of value. There comes a day when you're in that heated fellowship when you're attractive isn't enough to keep the marriage together. There's got to be something more. There's got to be substance that's behind it more than attractiveness. All right. So that's kind of our big idea as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 together today. It's this, that character is more valuable valuable than ancestry, attractiveness, or ability. The character's more valuable than all of these things. So keep that thought in mind as we go through 1 Samuel chapter 9. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to read 1 Samuel 9. It's sort of a longer chapter, but I want to read the whole thing just so that we can kind of grab all the context. It's 27 verses. Uh, it'll, it'll take a couple of minutes, uh, but we're going to read through 1 Samuel 9. Oh, and if you don't have a Bible and you need one, there's one in front of you. Also, uh, you can use the YouVersion Bible app. There's an event for you there you can check out uh, to follow along there as, as well. So 1 Samuel chapter 9, let's read it all, and then we'll go back through and break it down. It says this, there was a man of Benjamin who's his name was Kish, the son of Abel, uh, Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. 
There was not a more handsome person than he among all the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you. Arise and go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim, through the land of Shalisha, and did not find them. And he passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. And then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, and they did not find them. And when they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And they, he said to him, Now, look now, there is in this city a man of God who is an honorable man. Uh, all that he says surely comes to pass, so let's go there. Perhaps he can show us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread and our vessels is all gone, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul and said, Look, I have here in my hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I'll give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a uh, man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer, for he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Verse 10. Then Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? So, and as they, uh, and they answered them and said, yes, he's, uh, there he is just ahead of you. Hurry now for today. He came into the city because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. And as soon as you go into the city, you will surely, uh, find him before he goes up to the high place to eat for the people will not eat until he comes because he, he must bless the sacrifice afterward. Those who are invited will eat now, therefore go up for about this time. You will find him. So they went into the city, went up into the city, and as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming toward them and on his way up to the high place. Now the Lord said to Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon upon my people because of their cry has come to me. So when Saul, excuse me, when Samuel saw Saul, that's a tongue twister. When Samuel saw Saul, he, the Lord said to him, there he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This is the, this one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, please tell me is the, where is the seer's house? And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will, let you, I will let you go and tell you all that is in your heart. Verse 20, but as for your donkeys that were lost uh, three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and, your father's, and all your father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribes uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, why then do you speak like this to me? Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, "Bring the portion which I gave to you, of which I said to you, set it apart." Uh, said, so the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, "Here it is." That which uh, was kept back, it was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you, since I said, 
uh, I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when the, they had come down from the high place to, into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. They rose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, but you stand here that I may announce to you the word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would uh, meet us here by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we haven't gathered here in this place to hear the word of man, but we've gathered to hear the word of God. We need to meet with you. We need to spend time with you. We need to be... Um, uh, have an interaction with you, a supernatural meeting where we come into your presence and God, you transform us. And so Lord, by the power of your spirit and by the truth of your word, would you uh, impart yourself into our lives and cause us to become different people? Would you do that miraculous work that only you can do? God, that thing that is only possible by the presence and power of, of you, of your your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, today we submit ourselves to you in this end, and we pray that you would help us to see the value of character and to pursue it with all that we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we uh, look at this in 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to break this whole thing down into two big pieces, verses 1 through 10, an introduction, or the introduction of a king, and then verses 11 through 27, the revelation of a king. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 8 marks a big transition. The, the last chapter, the chapter we took, looked at last week, it marks a big transition in the book of 1 Samuel. It's where we fast forward to the twilight years of Samuel's life in the beginning of 1 Samuel. He's not even born yet. And then we get to chapter 8 and we're like, okay, let's fast forward to the end of, of his life. And in chapter 8, we see that Israel demands a king. Now, Israel's demand for a king was actually idolatrous rejection of God. It wasn't that, hey, you know, we just don't really have any leadership around. We, uh, we think we just need this person to be a leader for us. No, it's actually them saying, God, we don't want you to lead us. We want a person that's there instead. It's the, and the natural overflow of their rejection of God is rejection of God's chosen leader, who is Samuel. So this is all kind of wrapped up in chapter 8. And now what we see happening in chapter 9 is that God is actually bringing the king that Israel demanded, that God gives them what they asked for. Now, before we jump into it, there's a major, major theological concept that's clearly on display throughout chapter 9, and it's, it's actually a secondary issue in the chapter. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to address it just to kind of point it out, and you should be able to clearly see it as we uh, uh, travel through chapter 9, but it's the idea of the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is spoken of by Norman Geisler as God's control and governance over his creation. God not only creates things, but he also exercises control and governance or, uh, you know, he oversees everything that is created. Another word for sovereignty 
would be providence. And here's how Wayne Grudem describes the word providence. He says it like this. We may define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Number two, cooperates with the created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. You're like, thanks for reading the dictionary to me. I appreciate it. Uh, That's essentially the concept of providence, that God is over everything, that nothing happens except that God either causes it or allows it. That's it. There's nothing outside of God's control. That's the concept of God's providence. Everything about the who, the what, where, when, why, and how is all directed by God. His sovereignty or his providence is over the entire situation. And that's the thing that we see taking place here in chapter 9. That even through the raising up of the wrong guy, God is still displayed as being in complete control. He's still sitting on his heavenly throne. Just because Israel said, we don't want you to be king, God. That doesn't mean he said, oh man, I'm just gonna, I guess I'll get off the throne and we'll put somebody else there. That's not what happens. God still remains in control even in uh, giving them what they had asked for. So let's look at this first piece together, the introduction of a king, verses one through 10, and, uh, and go back through and break it down a little bit. Now notice there in verses one and two, we have some details that are given to us in verse 1, uh, and then we get to this, this person in verse 2, the, this guy named Saul. What this is is the introduction to another character in this narrative of 1 Samuel that's one of the three primary people in 1 Samuel. The, the first one is Samuel himself, right? We looked at him for the first eight chapters, and he still plays a very in, uh, intricate role throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, but... Um, another primary character is, is introduced to us, and this is Saul. Now, Saul's introduction to us, it's not haphazard and it's not accidental. We're actually being told some really specific stuff about who Saul is. Very specific information, and this specific information is, is painting a very specific picture. In these two verses, there are at least five details that really, really matter about who Saul is and what's taking place here. The first one is there... At the beginning of verse 9, and it also is repeated, I believe, again, uh, uh, toward the end of verse, uh, I said verse 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, It's that he is a man of Benjamin. And it's repeated there uh, again at the end of verse one. He's a Benjamite. So this is told to us twice that he is a Benjamite. And you're like, well, why does that matter? I mean, who who cares what tribe he is from? Well, this matters biblically speaking because in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, when um, uh, we read about the prophecies of the different tribes that are given there, the tribe of Judah is the kingly tribe, not Benjamin. So, so as Saul is being raised up out of Benjamin, he's being raised up out of the wrong tribe. He's, it's not the tribe of Judah. Uh, any guesses on where uh, King David comes from? Judah, good guess. Yeah, uh, that's where the, the second king, the king that God has chosen, comes from later on in the book of 1 Samuel. But here we see that uh, Saul comes out of Benjamin. In, later on in Genesis chapter 49, we read about Benjamin. And what we read about Benjamin is really interesting. It talks about him in such a way as being like a wolf, like a devourer, like one who consumes. And it's very much a description of what we read in chapter 8 about a king 
king who would be a taker, about how kings would be takers. Now, we also read here in uh, the description of, uh, of Saul that he is from a certain family. And notice at the end of verse 9 this phrase, a mighty man of power. That's describing his dad, that his dad is a mighty man of power. What this means, this phrase means, is that he's from a family that is full of wealth and influence. That it, just like any, you know, uh, True, just like it's true in any culture, the people with the money usually are the ones who wield the power. That's just kind of the way that it goes. Uh, that that uh, that's how things happen. And so he's from a family that is a, a wealthy and influential family. Also, number three, notice we read there in the description of him in verse two. It says he had a choice son. That Saul is a choice son. What choice means is it speaks to the fact that he's a young man. He still lives with his dad, uh, but he's full full grown. He's he's a man, uh, and yet he's young. He's full of life. He's full of vigor. He has a promising future. He looks like he has things all going for him. That's what the idea of choice is. And then also, secondly, in verse 2, he's handsome. Now, not only is he said to be handsome, but it goes, it's almost overstated. Like, he's, he's hotter than anybody is basically what it says. You see that there? There is no, not a person more handsome than him in, in the entire nation, right? So he, he's basically Saul made the cover of every magazine as most attractive person, uh, men and women. Like he is really attractive is, is basically what's going on here. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's the description of him. Also, we read there that he was at the end of verse two, head and shoulders taller than everybody else. That didn't mean he had a really long neck. It meant that he was just a tall guy. Okay. So like there's, he's a really, really, I'm six one. So for somebody to be head and shoulders taller than me, they'd have to be around six, eight. That, like that's a very big person. Like when you think about that, that's a massive person. Now that matters culturally because especially in this day and age, when you're like fighting tribal wars and battles, having a really big guy on your side was helpful. Uh, that, that's the way that uh, they, a lot of those things would be, would be won. They would be your champion. Now, Remember, all of, why does that matter? Okay, thanks for detailing all of these details for me about Saul. He's tall and really cute. Um, okay, so why does this matter? Because remember, chapter 9 comes after chapter 8. That's how counting works. And so in chapter 8, we, we see that Israel rejects God, right? What are they rejecting from God? They're rejecting uh, from God the, the idea that they want uh, they want a king. They say, God, give us a king. And so in chapter 8, they reject God. In chapter 9, God gives them the king. God was the substance that they needed without the image. And just as much as God was all the substance, Saul was all the image without any of the substance. That's what we're reading. He's not a man of character and he's not a man, he's not a godly man. Notice what's missing. Is there in this description, is there anything about godliness or holiness or desire to pursue the things of the Lord? No, he's tall, he's attractive and he's young and he's got money. That's, that's what we're told, right? Oh, let's follow that guy. And while that might sound silly, that's exactly the way that many leaders are chosen today. 
It's not because of their qualifications. It's not because of godliness of character. It's because of some other thing. They're attractive. Uh, they look like they have things put together. They have money. They have influence. That's how they get in positions of leadership. David Guzik says it like this. Friends, if being king over Israel was all about image, if being king over Israel was all about appearances, who looked the part? Then Saul was the man. The, the thing that's being driven home for us is, He's not a man of character. He just looks like he belongs. He, he's the guy that belongs on the cover of King Magazine. Like that's just, that's who they picked. That's this guy. All right, so the narrative unfolds in verses three through five with Saul's rise to power. And how does it happen? How does this first king of Israel rise to power? By losing donkeys. <laughs> what a weird story, right? Like you would think there would be some epic tale of awesomeness. And nope, he just lost donkeys. That's what happened. Now, uh, in this, in verse 3, it says, The father, uh, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And so Kish says to Saul, Take one of the servants and go look for the donkeys. In verses 4, verse 4 and 5, basically, they go all over the place and can't find them. Now, in this, um, the, it's probably not the first time these donkeys have gotten out, right? I mean, if you know anything about animals and livestock and all that kind of stuff, they tend to sort of get out every once in a while. And so it's probably not the first time this has happened. And Saul most likely has an idea of where to look. And he probably knows how to track donkeys. He knows what a donkey hoof print looks like. And he knows where they're probably going to go. He knows why they've gotten out and what they're going to go look for. And, you know, so he's, he just goes out. And I'm sure in his mind, this is just going to be a quick afternoon trip. I'll go find him in a couple of hours and we'll be back. And what, what was a quick afternoon trip turns into three days. And he's gone searching and searching and searching all over the surrounding region, uh, region to find these donkeys. Let me ask you a question. How do you typically respond um, when, simple, when a simple task ends up consuming a whole lot of time, a whole lot of energy, and a whole lot of resources. You get frustrated? Do you get irritated? Do you get angry? I mean, if, if you do, you're in my boat. Like, that's, that is me. I, I hate wasting time and energy and effort, especially on uh, something that is very, very simple. Uh, this, but here's the thing. This hide-and-seek game with the donkeys isn't because they're really elusive animals that are good at getting away from Saul. You know, they're not having a meeting saying, I see him over there, let's sneak off this direction. That's not what's going on. The donkeys are actually being led by God. God is directing them away from Saul. Saul should have found them by now. He, should, he knows where to find them. This isn't the first time this has taken place. You know, it's, it's just one of the things with handling livestock. And so he knows what he's doing. It's not like Saul's a moron and can't figure it out. It's that he just, he just can't find them. Why? Because God is, God, that was a weird way to say that. God is not allowing it to happen. God's, God is making the donkeys become elusive. I wonder how many times that kind of stuff happens in our lives. We have a certain course that we want to go. We have a certain thing that we want to do, and it should be simple. I've got the plan laid out. I've got it all established. And, and God, if you would just do the things that I said, then everything's going to be awesome. And, and then God just doesn't do your plan. He just messes it up, and he makes things crazy. And, and it takes way more time, and it takes way more effort, and it takes way more energy. And sometimes the inconvenient, frustrating, waste of time thing is actually vitally significant and instrumental to God getting his thing done in your life. The way Saul's going to become king and way, the way he's going to be led to the thing that God's leading him to 
is through lost donkeys, is through this waste of time, is through this frustrating thing. Again, to quote David Guzik, in case you didn't notice, I like him. Um, he says this, a king is going to be led to the throne by lost donkeys. Friends, we have no idea how God can use the seemingly normal and sometimes annoying circumstances in life to lead us in exactly the position he wants us to be in. God remains in control. Even when you're not, even when you can't see it, even when you wouldn't choose it, even when that thing is the opposite of the way you want to go. God remains in control. And so in verses 6 through 10, we see that Saul and his servant, they get this idea about going to see if Samuel can help them or not. Um, in verse 6, it says, uh, then he said, this is the servant saying to Saul, he said to him, look now, uh, there is in this city a man of God. He's an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. So Saul's servant uh, has the idea to go see if Samuel can help them. And, and uh, there's no indication in this, uh, again, speaking of the character of Saul, there's no indication that they would seek Samuel for any spiritual reason. Hey, you know, Samuel, what is God's will for my life? What, is, what does God want from me? Uh, Samuel, I, I'm, I, would you pray to God for me uh, that I would be closer to the Lord? There's no indication of any sort of spiritual thrust in their life whatsoever. It's just, hey, we got a problem. Can you help us find our donkeys? And maybe, maybe this is where you're at with your relationship with God. That's, that you only ask him for help in the problems. And I don't want to like fault you for that. Uh, that's, that's many times the way our relationship begins with God. It's this vague concept that God maybe is out there somewhere and that there is this thing called God. And, and I don't know where he's at or what he's doing or whatever. And yet I'm just going to, I'm going to throw up one of those Hail Marys. God, would you get me out of this situation? God, would you help me through this thing? And then typically here's what happens. You throw that kind of prayer out there. And then God comes through, right? Everything works out. You're like, man, it just worked out. It just happened to come together. No, it didn't. Right? No, that was God. God put it together for you. He took care of you. Don't, don't explain it away as just things working out. No, that's the Lord meeting you in that moment to open the door to more relationship. And so if that's where you're at, if that's just, you know, you just happen to have this relationship with God that's sort of this distant, disconnected, Hail Mary kind of a thing, I just want you to know there's more. There's a lot more. There's a deeper relationship there. There's more than just looking for donkeys available to you in the things of the Lord. And it comes through acknowledging and recognizing Jesus' sacrifice for you. That, that Jesus, when he went to that Roman cross and he bled and he died. He didn't do so just because it was a nice idea or because he felt like being a martyr or he was out of control. No, he did so with you on his heart and mind to pay the price for your sin, to buy you out of sin and death, to change your eternal address from going uh, through the motions of life and on your way to hell to going toward heaven, to a citizen of heaven. And, and so there's much, much more, not just in the future, but here today. Because Jesus says, I've come that they may have life, and that more abundantly in John chapter 10, verse 10. That Jesus wants to lead you into abundant life. And abundant life isn't just using God as the spare tire to get you out of the bad situation. There's a lot more to the relationship that's available. Now, in verse 7, 
We read of this uh, sort of fee structure, I guess. You know, what is it, like a quarter shekel for a donkey or a full shekel if you want to have a healing, I guess. I don't know how it really works. But the, the fee structure there, it's, you know, Saul said to his servant, look, what shall we bring the man for the bread in our vessels is gone and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And then the servant says, well, I got a quarter shekel. We'll give that to him. This isn't like Saul's you know, fee structure. It's like after church, if you want prayer, you don't have to give me something, okay? I'll pray for you. Uh, that, that's, that's not the way that, that this works. Um, it, it does work like that in some places, but that's, that's not the way it works in the Lord. Uh, and so this is just these guys wanting to not come empty-handed when they come and, and talk to Saul about it. I think it's honorable for them to have this idea that they're not just going to take, but they're going to give as well. Now, Samuel, in this description in verses 6 through 10, he is called the man of God four times, and he's also called honorable. And we also see there in verse 6, everything he says comes to pass. This, this is the consistent pattern and character of Saul's life. This is how he's known to, been known to be. This is something that we were told about him Early on in his life, when he first started his ministry, this is the way he was described. And now at the end of his life, this is still how he's described. That this is just how Saul lives his life. When God is at work, people know that they can go to Samuel and they can find the man of God. Now, let me ask you this. When God's at work in the lives of people around you, and he is, God is constantly, perpetually at work in the people's lives around you. Let, let me ask you this question. Uh, would they think of you as that man or woman of God? When they have an issue, when they have a problem, when they have a thing that comes into their life that they don't know how to solve, when they need prayer for something, when they have a, a rough situation that they're going through, they need advice, are you the man or woman of God that they would come to? Could God use you to encourage them, to direct them, to lead them to Jesus? Or would they be surprised that you think you're a Christian? Where's it at? Because there's no middle ground in that one. It's one or the other. Either they know that you're a follower of Jesus and they know that they can come to you or they would be surprised that you actually think that you're a Christian. Uh, that's, I think Samuel's life is a sobering reminder for us that it's not just a here and there kind of a thing with Jesus, but it's a, an all-encompassing relationship. And, you know, sometimes people would, would maybe say this to us, I can't hear your words because your life is too loud. Maybe the things that you would want to say are good things, but the stuff that's coming out of your life is just too loud. They can't hear the good words because the, my, my life doesn't line up with my language. Those things have to line up. All right, so secondly, not only the introduction of a king here in the first 10 verses, but also the second part of the chapter, the revelation of a king in verses 11 through 27. Look, look at verse 11, it says this. And as they went up the hill to the city, uh, they met some young women going out to draw water. And they said to them, is the seer here? So up to this point, Saul has no idea that the course of his life is about to change forever. He's still just, just looking for donkeys. He knows that the annoying donkeys are still lost. That's all he kind of knows. And as they get close to the city, they meet some young women to ask if Samuel is there. And then in verses uh, it's, uh, 12, 
12 and 13, uh, they have a, these women have a very long-winded answer. I, I don't know if you saw that. There are lots and lots of details. They're just, they're talking and talking and talking and saying a lot of things. Now, it could be that they have lots of words, or it could be that they're like, man, here's the hottest guy in Israel. I'm going to talk to him for a while, <laughs> you know? Or both. I have four daughters. They like to talk. You know, that's just the way that it goes. There's just lots of words that come out. And so in this, they're just, they're talking. We're, we're given some information here. They find out in verse 12 uh, that they're in the right place. Hey, Samuel is here. You, he just came here today. You're in the right place. And then verse 13, you're here at the right time that, that Samuel's actually just about to go up the hill uh, to this, this feast. And so if you guys go, you'll catch him. They're at the right place and at the right time. Time that, that Samuel, we are told in uh, chapter 7, verse 16, he would actually go on this preaching circuit all around Israel. So he could literally be anywhere at this moment, but he's not anywhere. He's right at his hometown where they're looking to find him. Now, none of this was circumstantial or lucky. This was God orchestrated. God put this together. God, God put these pieces together so that this would happen in this exact time, in this exact order, in this exact way to get the thing done that he was looking to get done. And what did he use? He used loosed donkeys that are out. He used Saul and his servant and even their own volition to go chase the donkeys and try to figure out where they were at. And in all of it, God was directing their path to right where they needed to be. God is absolutely directing your path. Not, nothing in your life is accidental. Nothing is circumstantial. Nothing just, nothing just is luck. Nothing just, shows, just so happens. Even though we might use those phrases, God is moving the pieces of your life to, go, to lead you in the direction he wants you to go, to bring you to himself into deeper relationship and to use you for the good of others and for the glory of God. Of the Lord. You see, we use the word luck to describe things happening in a way that we can't understand or explain. And a better word for that is providence. A better word for that is sovereignty. A better word is that God is the one that's in control. And so verse 14, it just so happens, look at verse 14. It says, when they went up to the city, as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming toward them. So they're literally walking right toward one another on a, on a crash course, that they run into each other here. And as Saul comes into the city, uh, Samuel's on his way to the feast, and God puts these details together. Now, in this moment for Samuel, this isn't a simple or easy moment. You see, things could seem out of control for Samuel, because the people rejected God and him, and yet... God speaks to Samuel, letting him know, hey, I've got everything in control. See there in verse 15, it says, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear uh, the day before Saul came, saying, and he tells him that, that you know, I'm going to send you a man from Benjamin. God speaks to him. And now when he says it in his ear, it wasn't that, you know, there was this whispering going on or whatever. Uh, it's not the audible voice of God that's taking place here. The idea here is that uh, um, the, the word has this imagery around it, it the, this in his ear. The, it has imagery of, you know, like taking off a head covering. You know how in, in uh, the Middle East, people typically wear a head covering. It's like removing the head covering from, from the ear so that you can speak directly into the ear so it's clearly and easily heard. That's the idea, that God is speaking internally to Samuel about these things that are taking place. And God is God is telling Samuel, hey, I know this isn't what you want. I know this isn't the direction you want to go. I'm still in control. And I've got everything taken care of. You see, what Saul could not see was clearly plain to Samuel. 
Saul didn't have a clue that he was about to be king, but it was clearly plain to Samuel. And you know what the difference was? The only difference was proximity to God and availability to God. That was the only difference. John chapter 2, verse 9 says this. Uh, it's, let, let me set the scene for John chapter 2. John chapter 2, Jesus is going to perform his first miracle of turning water into wine at, at the wedding feast. Uh, and, uh, and so he, he's there and he had just done the miracle. And then uh, we read in chapter 2, verse 9, it says this. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. You're like, what an obscure verse. Here's, there, there's something really interesting for us here in this. Jesus' first miracle was witnessed by many, but it was only understood by few. It was only the servants who knew what had taken place. A lot of people participated in it. A lot of people were around. A lot of people saw it happening, but didn't really have a clue what was taking place. Only the servants knew that there was a miracle being performed. There are many things in your life that God is doing. He's orchestrating events. He's performing miracles. He's, he's putting things together strategically to achieve his end, to achieve his goal. And the difference between whether or not we're aware is whether or not we're serving the Lord. That's the difference. It, God, it's not that God's not working. That, that's not it at all. It's that only the servants see the hand of God. That's the difference. And so the question to ask is, are you serving the Lord? Are you giving your life into his care? Because only the servants get to see the miracles that God is performing. Now, verse 16 uh, you know, we, we read about what God's going to do. And God says, I want to I use Saul for a very specific purpose. I want him to save my people from the hand of the Philistines because I've heard their cry. And God, as God uh, tells Samuel uh, that Saul is the guy. The guy that walk, is walking toward you, that's the guy that I want to use. Now, Saul is going to have many failures as we continue on through, through the book of 1 Samuel. He's going to have lots of failures, but God would still use him to bring victory for his people because the Lord had compassion on his people. Even though they rebelled against him, even though they, they abandoned him and rejected him, God would still use uh, Samuel, or excuse me, Saul for this very specific reason. In this section of what God says to Samuel, we read about, person, uh, about what God says, and there are personal pronouns used for God eight times in these two verses. In verses 16 and 17, eight times God references himself and that he's in charge and that he's in control. Verse 18 says this, when Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, please tell me where, uh, where is the seer's house? Now this might be something that we, we sort of look at and it's not really a big deal, but this is a big problem. This is a major problem. And here's why. Right from the very beginning, uh, the, the first interaction that Samuel and Saul have are filled with problems. Here's how Warren Wearsby describes it. I love the way he says it. Saul's home was in Gibeah, which is about five miles from Ramah where Samuel lived. And yet Saul didn't even know what all Israel knew in verse, chapter 3, verse 20, that a man of God named Samuel lived in Ramah. Apparently, he didn't attend the annual feasts and wasn't greatly concerned about spiritual matters. Like many people today, he wasn't against religion, but he, was, he didn't make knowing the Lord a vital part of his life. He literally lives five miles away from Samuel and has no clue 
who this guy is. He walks up to him and says, hey, do you, do you know who the, it's like, you know, if, if you were to, to walk up to Joe Biden and ask him, you know, who's the president of the United States? He, he might not know, but um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was mean. I didn't write that, okay? That was just, <laughs> stop talking. All right. But it's like that. It would be, it'd be embarrassing <laughs> in a lot of ways. But it's like, it's like that, okay? That, that you should know this information. All that, Sam, all that Saul had to do was go to one annual feast, of which there were three or more every year. He had to go to one, one time in his life, and he would have heard Samuel preach. And he would have known who he was. That's all he had to do. So apparently, spiritual matters were not a big deal for this guy. He didn't really, he didn't really want uh, to seek the things of the Lord. He was completely unaware of who Samuel was. Also, secondly, um, we, we read here as we continue on, um, Samuel basically tells him, hey, you're going to eat with me today, and I'm going to tell you all that's in your heart. Look at verse 20. It says, but as for your donkeys that were lost three, day, three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they've been found. And, notice this, on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and all your father's house? Now, Saul would have known what that meant. The desire of Israel, chapter 8, was for a king, right? They were saying, God, give us a king. And so when Samuel says this to Saul, Saul would immediately know what that meant. He knew exactly what the desire of Israel was. And notice his response there in verse 21. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of, all the, uh, of the smallest of tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Here, here's something else that's an issue within the heart of Saul. Number one, he has no idea who Samuel is. But number two, he's willing to bend the truth. Is it true that his family is of the least of the tribes of Benjamin? No, verse one tells us that his dad's rich and powerful. It's absolutely not true. This is a lie. And Saul knows it. And he's saying, why would he say this? Because he's bending the truth to make himself look humble. He's seeking after false humility. Now there is some actual humility in there as well. As he says, why do you speak like this to me? There's some actual humility, but it's, but, but it's glaring that there's false humility in there with him as well. He wants to make himself look good. And this is going to be a problem that haunts Saul for the rest of his life. This exact issue. Now, when uh, in verses 22 uh, through 27, Saul finds out that the, this feast that he's invited to actually was prepared for him. It says, now, verse 22, now Samuel took Saul, his servant, and brought them to the, to the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you. And, 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 and I set it apart and he gives it to, to Saul. He finds out this whole thing is actually prepared for him as he's placed in the seat of honor and given the special portion of food. You see, in verse 20, we see Israel's desire for a king. In verse 24, we see this meal coming together. Verse 25, there are conversations they have after the meal, late into the evening. I, I wonder what, uh, what Samuel said. I wonder what kind of things were taking place and what he wanted to say to Saul in that moment. In verse 27, uh, there's a statement that is given to him. Hey, I'm going to give you the word of God. And all of this is a ceremony that is to begin recognizing Saul as the king that Israel desired. And so this chapter sort of ends on a cliffhanger, doesn't it? 
It leads right up to, I'm, I have the word of God for you. And, and that's it. We just sort of stop right there. Here's, as we wrap this up, I just want to wrap it up with this one thought. The nation of Israel is an example of our tendency, your tendency, my tendency, individually, don't think nationally, think of you. Not that other person who you hope would maybe hear a message, but you, me. We have a tendency to put way too much focus on the image and way too little focus on the substance. And I think that that applies at least in two ways. Number one, we need to select leaders, whether it's personal leaders in our lives, spiritual leaders, political leaders, based upon their character and not their appearance, based upon what they actually do, not the way they seem to look in our eyes. Here's a little tip. If you're, for those of you who are single or, you know, I'm thinking about this all the time because I've got girls that are, you know, older teens and I'm like, Lord, send me a godly man so I don't have to go to prison. Um, but <laughs> think about this. I'll just use girls because I have, I have daughters. How does he talk to his mom? How does he treat the waiter or the waitress? How does, he, how does he treat people who seem to have lesser value in culture or whatever because they're a servant, they're, they're serving somehow? What, what does he do with these people? How does he talk to them? How does he treat those people? That's an insight into his character. He might say all the right things. He might have all the right looks, but he's so hot, he's so cute. Yeah, but he's a jerk. And when you're married to that jerk, you know what's gonna happen? It's gonna get worse, not better. It, you're not going to change him, right? Guys, same thing, right? Look into the heart of the person, not just what's on the outside. Look for the substance, not just the, uh, the way that it appears on the outside. You see, outside attractiveness can actually hide inside corruption. And that's true in a lot of ways. It might look good from the outside, but it's actually dead and broken, on the inside. Second application, we've got to value personal character above personal appearance. Hey, take a shower, you know, cut the hair, wear the makeup, you know, I don't care, whatever, whatever you want to do, do the things. But instead of worrying about what we look like, let's take care of who we are. And when you take care of who you are, it will be displayed on the outside. You won't have to worry about the attractiveness kind of a thing. It'll be revealed outwardly. Second Peter 2.22 says it like this. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit. And another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. Dogs and pigs do outwardly what is true inwardly. Right? You can put, you can put clothes on your cute little fluffy dog and you can make it look nice. And like, oh, it's, it's so cute. And then it goes and eats the puke. You know, like that's just... <laughs> do you know why it does that? Because it's a dog, right? You can do that with a pig. You can put makeup on it. You can get a liposuction. You can, you know, put some nice clothes on it, spray some perfume on it, and it's going to go right back to the mud. Because just because you dressed up the outside doesn't mean you changed the inside. There's, a, there's a, a, an inside work that Jesus wants to do. You can try to dress up the corpse of your flesh, by making it look nice and putting makeup on it and spraying perfume on it so it doesn't look so bad and it doesn't smell so bad, but it doesn't change the fact that it's dead. Yeah. 
And if you're trying to change all the outside stuff and you're finding yourself frustrated because I made that New Year's resolution and I can't follow through with it and I'm trying to be a better person and it's just not working and, and somebody cuts me off in traffic and I explode or I just wanna go to work and punch that guy in the nose or whatever it is. There's these things in your life and it's all inside. And if you're trying to just do stuff on the outside to control it, eventually it's all gonna come tumbling down because a surgery needs to take place. And the surgery that has to take place is only capable, the only capable hands are Jesus's. Only he can reach into your heart and turn you from dead into alive. Jesus didn't come to make you a better you. He didn't come to give you a better life. He came to make you the redeemed version of yourself, to take your dead self and make you alive. He takes dead people and makes them alive. He doesn't make dead people painted. That's not what Jesus does. And so the only way you get that is submission to him. To say, Jesus, I know that you have given your life for my sake. I know that you have sacrificed everything for me and I want to hope in and trust in you. Would you do that? Would you submit yourself either for the first time or even more so to Jesus today? He's in control. Nothing's out of his control. His character is what matters, not just what looks like on the outside. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it and to look into it and to see so clearly how you are God, that you are over all and that we can hope in you and trust in you. And Lord, I pray that you would do that surgery within us. Cause us not to just look good on the outside, but to actually be good because you changed us, because you made us more like you. And so, Father, we submit ourselves to you today in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.